We are going to be in Luke chapter 2. Let's pray. Once again, Lord God, we come and we just ask that you would speak to us, that you would clearly um, show us what it is that you want us to learn. Lord, many of us have read these passages for years, over and over, and we know them in many ways. We know them very well. And yet, Lord, each time we open your word, there's something there for us. And we ask that this morning, as we open your word, you would open our eyes and our hearts to see what it is that you're saying to us, each one of us, individually. We ask this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. I'm not telling you anything new if I say that uh, our culture is a culture of extremes. Um, we tend to go from one side to the other, uh, from one extreme to another, and Christmas is one of those times when we can do that. Uh, we can buy into the commercialism and the, oh, I've got to buy 17 toys for each one of my kids. Or we can buy into the other side where, well, you know what, Christmas isn't really in the Bible, it's a pagan thing, and we don't want to have anything to do with it. And there's those two extremes that are that are out there and some others as well. Um, I don't know, I, I've always been someone who has been raised to see in the way that we celebrate Christmas that there are things there that remind us of the first Christmas. For instance, um, <clears throat> well, let me just give you this quote that I came across like this one. Christmas is God's gift of salvation wrapped in swaddling clothes. And I kind of like that, the whole idea that Christmas is a gift to us. Um, and, I, and I love the symbolism of Christmas. For me, I see the star in the tree, and it makes me remember the star that led the wise men. Or I, I see an angel, and I think of the angels that announced the things that, uh, announced to the shepherds that the baby had come. The tree with the lights and the beauty just make me think of that everything uh, was wondrous and, and beautiful. And yet that a tree also reminds me that Jesus was hung on a cross, a tree, if you will. Astronaut James Irwin said this, I thought it was really kind of profound. There is something more important than man walking on the moon, and that is God walking on earth. Great quote. <clears throat> so let's jump in. Last week we talked a little bit about the birth of Jesus, and we talked about the perspective of the angels' work and what they did, especially Gabriel, and then, of course, then all the hosts of heaven. We're going to jump to the eighth day now in verse 21 of Luke chapter 2. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name that the angel had given him before he was conceived. I kind of like that last little phrase there. So he already had a name picked out by God himself and told to both um, Joseph and Mary. Um, Matthew, matter of fact, tells us, Matthew 120, and the angel is um, speaking, he says, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. He's saying this to Joseph. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so you've got that statement to Mary when Gabriel came to her, and when Joseph had that vision. Uh, one of the things that the angel said to both of them was that, You've got a son, he's coming, he's miraculous, he's the son of God, and you are to give him the name Jesus. One of the reasons for that name is he will save his people from their sins. And they see that, and they step in, and they they, they obey God. Um, 33 days later, we have that, uh, figure that out a little bit, in verse 22, 33 days later, 
Then it was time for their purification offering, as required by the law of Moses, after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now, two things are happening here. They're kind of overlaid, but really what happened first probably was they went to the temple for Mary's purification. She was ceremonially impure from the birth, but also any family member that came in contact with her would also be ceremonially impure. Remember, when when um, if someone was unclean and someone who wasn't, someone who was fine, touched them, they became the same as the person who was unclean. Both of them would be ceremonially unclean. So you've got Mary taking care of Jesus and Joseph's in the picture. So when it says their time, it probably is a, a statement of the fact that the whole family went to go through the purification process. So now Mary and Joseph and Jesus are all been through that purification process. The second part now that happens is what has to happen with firstborn sons. And that is the dedication or the presentation of that son to the Lord. So the law of the Lord says if a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. <clears throat> and, you know, what that really means is that they had to pay a certain price. There was, uh, I think it was five shekels that they had to pay to redeem that child. Now, just kind of go back and think through what all this means. Um, the firstborn, the Lord said, belonged to him. So if it was the firstborn of your cattle, then that firstborn would be offered as a sacrifice or your first lamb. But of your children, the first one was dedicated to the Lord, offered to the Lord, and you had to redeem them or ransom them back, if you will. And so there was a process of sacrifice and an offering that you would give in order to say, God, we know that this son belongs to you, and thank you for letting us have him, and we will raise him for you. There's that kind of a statement being made in that process. Process. So you've got this, this, this purification going on, and then you've got this dedication going on all at the same time. And the way it's written is kind of interwoven, but the purification took place first, and then the second thing would have been the, um, <clears throat> the, the dedication of, of the son. Um, verse 24 says, how did that happen? Well, they took and offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And if you go back and read a little bit of the Old Testament law, it says a lamb and, and, a, and a dove, but if you can't afford the lamb, then two turtle doves would be fine or two pigeons would be fine. Um, I used to have an argument with a guy in Detroit. He was, uh, he was totally convinced that, uh, that the, the wise men showed up at the stable and saw Jesus in the, in the, in the, in the <clears throat> stable and in, in the manger. And um, I just loved giving him reasons why that couldn't possibly be true. <laughs> Um, and I won't give you all of them, but one of them is, if they were poor, they could offer these sacrifices. If they had a whole bunch of gold and myrrh and other things back there, they were no longer poor. They would have had to offer the, the lamb. And so one of the, just a tiny little thing there, um, that I would tell him every now and then, is, no, they weren't all that poor, were they? <laughs> if they had all that other stuff. Anyway, so they offer the sacrifices, and um, the wise men do show up a little bit later. Old Testament law required these things, and I've got them backwards in your notes. I think I've got them right. Yeah, I've got them right up on the on the overhead. Uh, Old Testament law required circumcision on the eighth day. All of the sons were supposed to go through that. That did not have to happen at the temple. Any priest uh, could do that in the towns or villages where they lived, and many times that took place right in the hometown uh, where the family lived. So the circumcision on on that eighth day, all the sons, this was a symbol of the covenant of the Jewish people. 
The second one was purification of the mother and any other family members who had become unclean. 33 days after the circumcision, um, she was considered, like I said, ceremonial unclean until they went through that process. And then the redemption or the dedication um, of the of the firstborn sons. So firstborn sons were presented, dedicated to the Lord, uh, and then they were purchased back. And it's one of those things where God, they were dedicated to God, given to Him, but redeemed so that they could then continue to be part of the family instead of maybe going into the priesthood. Remember like Samuel, where Samuel came and he stayed. He then stayed in the temple and worked. So... <clears throat> These are the things that, that are going on in this passage. So now let's just jump into an implication real quick. Um, it says in verse 22, When the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem, presented him to the Lord. And several things jump out here at me as I was reading this passage over and over this week and reading it in different translations and just trying to, again, fill my mind with what it was that happened and how it happened. Uh, the whole idea that they were very poor came through again. You know, they, they did not have a lot. Um, we also learned parents had a relationship with God that was precious. Uh, as you read how they react to these things and how they do them. Um, and so it just kind of as bullet points, Jesus, Jesus' parents obeyed what the angel said. Stop and think about that first of all. Gabriel said to Mary, name him Jesus. Gabriel said to Joseph, name him Jesus. So they're getting together saying, so what are we going to name him? Well, Jesus was the name. It was already picked. And it wasn't picked by them. And so they obediently follow through and they name him Jesus. Um, they knew God's word. Now, please remember, they didn't have a written copy of their own. That was a rarity, so rare. And so you would hear, when you would go to the synagogue, you would hear reading, you would hear teaching. But the way you learned was to, to memorize parts of it, if you could, and then also just learn over and over and over. So they knew God's Word, and the reason for that was they dedicated time and effort to do so. They had to go someplace where they could hear it, someplace where it was taught to them, someplace where they could hear it over and over sometimes. And so that's another really important part that sometimes we forget. We, we're so blessed in our telephone, our pad, our, you know, I, I don't even use paper Bibles anymore because I can look at so many different translations by just fanning through my screen. And I can compare things like I can't uh, with, with my um, paper Bible. But they knew God's Word. This is another one that kind of struck me. They honored God's Word. They didn't just know it. It's one thing to know, thou shalt not kill. It's another thing to not do it. It's one thing to know that we're supposed to give to the Lord of the blessings that He's given us. It's another thing to actually step out and give. And so these are people who knew God's Word and in reverence and awe decided they were going to obey God's Word. And so they followed the rules for the, for the eight-day <clears throat> ceremony of, of, of the circumcision. They, they kept... God's word by going on that 33rd day or 40th day to the temple and getting all of the things done that needed to be done. And so they showed that they honored and respected and appreciated God's word in that way. And the next one is kind of, kind of overlaps, but obeyed God's word. And this is a choice. They, they, they said, you know what? We know what the word says. We're going to do what the Word says. We will step out. We will be in obedience. We will seek to honor God through the things that we say, through the things that we do, by the things we allow in our minds, or the things that we banish from our minds. They chose obedience 
over disobedience. And that, that's a choice they had to make. And it just made me think a little bit. I've been raised around the Bible, raised in the church, raised in, in the process of uh, studying God's Word a lot. The question becomes, do I really honor, reverence God's Word? Do I really seek to obey it? I mean, you get the impression with Joseph and Mary that there was no question. This has to be done this way. We're doing it this way. And they weren't sitting back at somewhere else saying, oh man, we gotta go do this. It, it, it seemed like they were entering into every bit of what God asked them to do with all of their hearts. So I wonder, do I, do I seek to honor God's word and obey God's word the same way? James 1.22 says this, very challenging verse. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, thinking, oh, I'm listening, it's good, I'm getting the word, yeah. Don't merely listen to the word, do what it says. Don't just listen, that's a good thing to listen, good thing to read, good thing to study. The next step is do. Do what the word says. And that's a great place for us to just pause and stop from time to time. And maybe you're reading something at some point during the day. You come face to face with something and you go, wow, Lord, this is something I need to do. Lord, help me to do this. Because it's coming from you. It's not enough just to come to church on Sundays. That's a great part of what we do. It's not enough to... You know, be singing Christian music, whatever it is. The question is how, how do we take God's word, take it in, and then do what it says? That's, that's the process that should be happening for us. Not just Sundays. I hope it's happening for Sundays. We hear something, we go, why? That's a challenge. Lord, help that to be true in my life. But I was thinking about as, as a parent, um, and also, when I was a teenager, those two things were kind of pictures in my mind as I was thinking about how do we honor God's Word, or how did my parents honor God's Word? And one of the things I will never forget is that my dad's office was right next door to my bedroom, and so I would get up, and it didn't matter what time of the day I got up, uh, and thinking of school days, that kind of thing. I tried to get up as late as I could, but <coughs> my dad would be sitting at his desk reading his Bible. I don't remember him not doing that. That was just something that was, that's what dad did. The night before, he had done all of his lesson planning, done everything that he needed to do to teach the classes he was teaching in school. The morning before he left was dedicated to God. What an incredible thing. My dad was far from perfect, and we had our fights along the way. But one thing I knew, he loved God's Word. And I could tell by the effort he put into spending time with God in his Word, and by the effort he put into trying to obey God's Word and trying to teach God's Word. So one of the questions is, do our kids see us reading? The Word of God. Do they see us? This is an important one for me. Do they see us wrestling with the truths of God's Word? There's stuff in there that's, that's hard. 
It's difficult, and we can't explain it simply and easily by saying, oh, this is what you got to do. Sometimes we have to wrestle with what's there and think about it. When your kids come with a hard question, it's real easy to give a flippant answer, but helping them think through why that's hard and how we wrestle with some of those things. Some of the, <clears throat> some of the best times we've had with our girls were times when they said, why in the world did God do this? And they ask a, a, a legitimate question about something they don't understand. And we together would work it through and wrestle and come to some kind of an understanding on why God might have done that. There are other things that show that we honor God's word. It may be that uh, memorizing or at least thinking through God's word. Um, what place does it have in our in our family and in our, in our discussions those are all parts that come. <clears throat> but we need to be like Joseph and Mary, where we say, okay, God's word's essential. It's, it's important, and we're going to pursue knowing God and obeying his word in our lives. So now they're at the temple. They've done the purification ceremony. They've, <clears throat> they've done the redemption or presenting Jesus, devoting him to the Lord. And in verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, and, and look at the description of this man. Wouldn't, tell me you wouldn't want to have this guy around. Who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. No, he was waiting for the Messiah. He just couldn't wait. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Again, it's one of those rare things in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit was, was on someone in a special way. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so his, his devotion to the coming of the Messiah and praying that God would bring the Messiah soon, all of those things were part of this man's life. And he was someone who was either in the temple or near the temple regularly, devoting himself to praying for the coming of the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit had said, listen, you need to know you're going to have a unique privilege. You will see the Messiah himself before you die. So the consolation that you've been praying for is coming. It's really close. And then, of course, on the day that it happened, he was moved by the Spirit to go to the temple courts. He sees the child Jesus and knows the Spirit lets him know that's the one. And they've done all these things according to the law. And then Simeon takes him in his arms. And it's amazing some of the things he says. We'll talk about those in just a second. But Simeon was these things. This is what Simeon was. He was righteous. In other words, he was a godly man, upright and moral. He was devout. He was devoted, and and he was reverent in his approach to God. He was eagerly waiting for the Messiah, the consolation of Israel. I mean, this is something that, yeah, you know, I would think that by this point, a lot of people were thinking, yeah, well, if it happens, it'd be nice. Not this guy. This guy was saying he's coming, and I want to be here when he comes. I, I'm praying for the coming of the Messiah, and so he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Yeah, the Holy Spirit was on him, like the, like the judges perhaps, but maybe even more than that, because the judges, the Holy Spirit would come on them, there'd be a special task that would be accomplished, and then it seemed like the Holy Spirit wasn't really involved in their lives on a personal level that much anymore. But with this man, the Holy Spirit wasn't just upon him, it was an indwelling, it seems, because the Holy Spirit was directing and guiding him and telling him things that he didn't say to the average person out there. So the Holy Spirit was on him, and he was guided by the Holy Spirit. So he walked in obedience to God and went to the temple. There's some implications here. 
Luke uh, 2.25 says, Now, there was a man from Jerusalem called Simeon, righteous, devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Holy Spirit was on him. And, and, and he is longing, longing, longing for the coming of Christ. The Christ should come. This was, he, 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 there's nothing else that mattered in his life anymore other than to be praying for, waiting, and longing to see the fulfilled promises of the Messiah. I don't know where I would have been uh, at that time if I'd just been, uh, you know, somebody in Israel. I would hope I'd be like him. I'm not sure that I would have been. Um, I wonder how many people in Israel really had given up. Yeah, yeah, that's a promise. We haven't heard anything from God in 400 years. What are you guys talking about? How many were really waiting? And there were some. Um, How many were seeking to live in a way that pleased the Lord while they waited? I mean, it pretty much just said, uh, well, whatever. I wonder how many of them were obedient culturally. In other words, they did all the cultural things, sacrifice and everything, but their hearts were really not in it. How many were on the other side where they obeyed no matter what the personal cost? That's, that's where you begin to see something that is a reality for someone. I, I find it really fascinating, too, as I was reading through this passage. God revealed the coming of Jesus in a really special way. But it wasn't to a religious leader. It wasn't to a Pharisee, a priest, or a Sadducee, or a Levite. It wasn't to anybody in the ruling class. It wasn't to anybody that was powerful and had income and, and political sway. It wasn't to somebody wealthy at all. It was to Simeon. The old guy that hangs around the temple. The old guy that prays. And just after he's there, of course, then Anna comes along and you meet her too. But just It really just struck me. And, and Simeon, when he says, okay, Lord, you can take me home now. I got, I got to see the Messiah. I'm ready to go. Reminds me of Paul. Second Timothy 4. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. To me, that's the kind of statement Simeon was making. God, thank you. This is incredible. You've let me see the consolation of Israel. Let me see the Messiah. I've held the Messiah. Now let your servant go in peace. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to come home. What an incredible thing. Those who are longing for the Lord's coming... Paul says in verse 8, Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give or will award to me on that day, not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. So you got Simeon longing for the first coming of the, of the Messiah, and that's fulfilled. And now you got Paul later saying to the church, Hey guys, there's a special crown for everybody who is seriously longing and waiting and praying for the second coming of Christ. So those who long for his coming, here's a, just a couple of things, are focused on what God wants. Um, soldiers do what the commander says, or they're not very good soldiers. Um, they eagerly pursue a closer walk with Christ. You long for his coming, then one of the things you want to do is you want to spend a little more time with him. Spend some time focusing on who he is and what he's done and just growing in that intimacy with him. 
Those who long for his coming keep short accounts. And I, what I mean by this is you're not going to let a whole stack of things that you need to be accountable to someone for stack up. For instance, uh, you, you, you say something and it's unkind or wrong or even sinful and you know it. Well, you don't just put it in the closet somewhere and forget about it. You keep short accounts. You go as soon as you're aware of that to the person and you ask forgiveness. Uh, and it's just the, the whole idea of don't let stuff stack up that you need to take care of. Keep short accounts. Keep that relationship with God um, growing. Spend time with those who know the Lord. Some of my favorite times <clears throat> in ministry have been sitting down with someone who's been in ministry 15, 20 years longer than me and just listening and hearing and and sometimes saying, hey, you know, this this is hard for me and I'll tell them something they'll say, yeah, it's hard for me too. And then <clears throat> they may pray with me or just simply say, keep on going, it's going to be okay. And then share the good news with others so that they can know Christ. And again, we pray for those opportunities, we look for them, and if God gives us a chance, we, we share and we give them, uh, even if it's just a little nugget of the gospel. Came across this quote too. Jesus did not come to make bad people good. God sent Jesus so that those who were dead in their trespasses and sins could be made alive. That's why we celebrate Christmas, folks. Jesus came to give life. And He is the only one that can give life. It's only through Him that we can receive that forgiveness that we so desperately need. Verse 28, Simeon then goes on after he's been holding the child in his arms, and he he prophesies. He says, verse 29, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, now dismiss your servant in peace. Hey, I got to see the Messiah. Let me go. And he goes on to say, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light of revelation for the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. Now it's interesting, listen to what he's saying here. This isn't just about Israel anymore, is it? Not that it ever was, because the Lord was always had a way for people who were non-Jewish to be a part of things. But now, Simeon's actually making a much stronger statement about it by saying, you sent the, the Messiah, you sent Jesus for the people of Israel and all others. All others are included in the sending. So Sovereign Lord, Controller of all things, you can let me come home now. I'm ready. I've seen your promise. I've seen the salvation. I've held in my arms your promise that you have made so many years ago. And remember, I think one of the reasons Luke even puts it this way is that he is writing to a Gentile audience and he doesn't want them to think that the Messiah is just for Jewish people. That's never the point. The Messiah was for the Jewish people, absolutely. And he was to be a light to all nations. So both of those things were there. The child's father, verse 33, and mother marveled at what was said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and the sword will pierce your own soul 
as well. So Simeon prophesies here. He said, listen, this child is going to cause a lot of things. It'll be, a, it'll be the rising up of many and also many who will reject and turn away from him. Uh, he will be spoken against with hostility and anger and determination to kill him. And, and the thoughts of many are going to be revealed. And, and by the thoughts, what he's talking about is the motives of the heart. He says, this child's going to not just talk about the words and actions. He's going to talk about the motivation of hearts. Just some implications here. Three, three word pictures kind of come through in this section. And actually, some of them we jump a little bit further into Luke. But um, he was the stone that would bring about the rise and the fall of many. And that's in Luke 20, verse 17 and 18. Jesus looked directly at them and said, Then what is the meaning of this which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. And he's just saying, hey, you know what? I'm the Messiah. I'm the coming one. I'm the cornerstone or the capstone. And, and those who reject me, I'm a stone that will cause falling and stumbling. To those who receive me, I am the capstone of the arch or the cornerstone in other passages. A couple other verses in, in uh, 1 Corinthians that talk about that. 1 Corinthians 1.22, Jews demand miraculous sign, the Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block and a foolishness to the Gentiles. Stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the stone brought about the rise and the fall of many. The next thing was a sign to be spoken against. The word sign here can be traced back to miracle, if you will, the miracle of his birth. Um, Jesus was the true worker of miracles. But he did his miracles not to, st- <clears throat> his miracles did not stop those who were rejecting him from rejecting him. When he did miracles in the presence of those who didn't want anything to do with him, it just gave them more ammunition to go out and get him. And you sit back and you go, what? How could that be? But that is what happened in the hearts of some. John twelve thirty seven. Jesus is talking to some people and they're against him and he says, Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs, and there's all kinds of things that he's done, in their presence, they still would not believe. That's incredible. He did amazing, miraculous, wondrous things. They saw them and they could not say it was a trick or something else. They knew he had raised that child to life. They knew this had happened. They understood that when he fed these people with five loaves of, of bread and two fish that everybody ate and there were leftovers. They got that. But they were not have this man to rule over them. They did not want Jesus as their Messiah. Yeah, they wanted the bread. They just didn't want the king. And the third one, a sword will pierce Mary's soul. Every Jewish girl that time was, I'm told, would pray something like, uh, Lord, may I be the blessed one through whom the Messiah would come. And it may very well be that Mary had prayed that. And then to have the angel come and, and say, you are going to be the Messiah. And, she, and her response to that was, from now on, all generations will call me blessed because I've been given this amazing privilege. She didn't know what was coming yet. 
And Simeon gives her a little sense of it. He said, a sword's going to pierce your soul in all of this. He's going to be the rise and fall of many. He'll be the stumbling block for some, the cornerstone for others. And when the time comes, he will also pierce, your soul will be pierced. I think about all the things that that might have been kind of thinking about when they're talking about that sword. Think about all the accusations of immorality that she had to deal with. Like up until the time that Jesus was actually serving, they would say things like, well, that's Mary's son. Why? Because, well, they, they knew Joseph wasn't involved. They weren't, they weren't even married yet. Um, having a baby by herself in the stable, no mother, no relatives around. Running in the middle of the night to escape Herod's soldiers all the way down to Egypt. Imagine that that sword might have had a little bit of, you know, kind of hanging over her head thinking in that kind of an idea. Watching her son grow. Watching him grow up. Watching him do the things that he did. Watching him never have to be disciplined. That kind of should blow our minds. He was perfect. He did not sin. Watching him talk to the religious leaders when he was 12 years old and then watching the religious, religious leaders as time went on get stronger and stronger against him and then watching the nation reject him and watching her son hang on a cross. And a sword will pierce your soul too. I wonder how much sense any of this made to Mary at the time. Because looking back, it's easy for me to say, well, that had been hard. That must have been really hard. Wow, that should have been incredibly difficult. She's looking forward, doesn't know what's coming yet. And he says it's going to be, it's going to be like a sword. I think one of the things that we have to always remember, and we try to do it with some of our symbolism here, when we realize that Christmas is beautiful and wondrous and, and is celebratory, and we're excited about thinking about the baby coming, but the baby came for a purpose. That's why we have a cradle and a cross side by side, because that was the point of his coming. So Simeon... While he held Jesus, he said, This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and then a sword will pierce your soul too. He gives the baby back and we never hear of Simeon again. It may very well be that Shortly thereafter, the Lord did call him home. God fulfilled his promise to Simeon, and Simeon's prophecies came true. came across this this week, and I thought I'd just kind of share it. <clears throat> just kind of looking at, at th- three things here. Jesus came to a virgin mother. We'll get that one. But to an adoptive father. I hadn't thought about that. You know, Joseph was his father the whole time that uh, Joseph was still alive. So he came to a virgin mother, to an adoptive father, father, and to a fallen world. Okay, so he came into a world which he made perfectly, and now totally corrupt and fallen. 
Second one, Jesus is the Son of Man, fully human, and the Son of God, fully divine. And fully human, think about the incarnation, and, and some people say that that is the most extraordinary miracle of the Bible, the incarnation of God. On another level, the fact that he's fully human and fully divine also is one of the most profound mysteries you're going to find. We're being told it's true, and we believe it's true. But how that all goes together and how it works, you know, you can ask me, but I'll say, wow, yeah, I agree with you. I don't know. (laughs) But I believe what he says. And then, on many levels, Jesus reaffirmed that God is the creator and the sustainer of all things. That's just part of the way Jesus lived. Also, God is always faithful to his word. How many times do we see all the way through the Gospels? And, and it, just as it was said, or just as it was promised, or all of these things, and, and it just time after time after time. And then the fact that God is transcendent, or sovereign, or just over all things. Jesus presents that just in the everyday way that he lived. He lived his life before his Father, understanding How that worked, we don't know, but understanding that God was transcendent over all things. The interesting thing is, if as you study the the scriptures, if you study the the life of Christ, my dad used to take uh, start in January, and he would study a harmony of the Gospels every year. He had a little thing with all four Gospels side by side. And he did that because he just wanted to start his year looking at Christ, looking at what Christ said, looking at what Christ did. And one of the things that you can see is how did Jesus impact the people with whom he came in contact? Study that. How did he impact them? What impact did he have on, on the shepherds? What impact did he have on, on Peter? What impact did he have on Judas and, and all these others? And what impact did he have on the little boy that brought the five fish and the two loaves? We can ask ourselves those questions and think about those things. Simeon said Jesus became <clears throat> the cornerstone. Let's go ahead to the next one, please. Thank you. Jesus became the cornerstone, the most important stone for those who believed in him. And he became the rock of judgment for those who rejected. And everybody in the world comes to a point in their lives where they have to make that choice, that decision. Will I Accept and believe what he is saying? Will I believe the forgiveness that he offers? Will I receive that? Because he said, if you come and you believe in me, then I will, I will make you new, brand new. Or we can reject him. God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus to die and gives us the freedom to make that choice, to believe or not to believe. Those that choose not to believe, there is a rejection there that can't be changed once death comes. The choice is always ours. God gives us that choice. He doesn't force us to make a decision, but he gives us the opportunity, and he gives us the grace and the mercy. And so if you're here today and you've never made that decision to believe, yeah, I believe this is true. I believe Jesus died for me. I want to receive that forgiveness that he's, he's given me. I, I believe he did that for me.
If you haven't done that, then you are in the rejection column still. And that's something that <clears throat> we just have to stop and think about every now and then. Where am I? Do I believe? Yeah, okay, great. Then I'm going to pursue him. If you're still in that category of, well, you may have questions, you may have doubts, but until you make the choice to believe, you are rejecting what Jesus has come to offer. And so as we think about Christmas and we think about the purpose of Christmas, the coming of Christ to be the perfect Lamb of God, let's be praying and thinking about those that we know and love and those that we live near and those that we work with. May we have the opportunities. We can ask God to give us those opportunities to just share how precious Jesus is to us or to ask a question or to share something that we have an opportunity to. Jesus came, he grew into a man, and then he died so that we could be united with him again here but also in the future. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your overwhelming grace and mercy. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you uh, willingly came. And at this time of the year, when we think of all the beauty and the wonder of it all, and the fact that you took on all of the human limitations, we thank you and we praise you and worship you for that. And Lord, even as we have the Christmas tree and all of the lights and the beauty in mind, we also see past that to, to a cross. And just help us to keep those two thoughts ever in mind. You came, but you came to die. And so we thank you, praise you, and worship you. In your name, amen.